Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World with me, Kane Sims. And uh, today we're going to have a conversation with Matt Taylor, who you may remember from February. He was on the podcast in February. He's a CPO at Noble, a very interesting company who is creating and have created a conversational AI platform built from the ground up on large language models. And so if you are interested in figuring out how large language models can be applied in conversational AI automation programs, then this is an episode where we're going to get into more detail about that, as well as answering the question, are we through the hype cycle? Are we getting through the hype cycle when it comes to large language models? Are we still well and truly on the up curve of that initial period of hype. We'll find out a little bit more when we welcome Matt onto the show in just a moment. But first, before we do that, I need to give a shout out to our presenting sponsor today. It is Tidio, Tidio.com. Tidio is a live chat and conversational AI platform that's designed specifically for small to medium-sized businesses that are retailers specifically who have an online store. If you have an e-commerce business, then Tidio is definitely worth checking out. They have a whole bunch of pre-packaged conversations around some of your common use cases, like checking uh, order status and checking stock availability, product recommendations, shipping, all that kind of stuff, uh, return policies and all that kind of things. Plus, it's got a live chat capability within it. And so if anything does go awry in the conversations that you create, then you can manage all of your live chats in one place as well. Um, it's answering uh, four out of five customer questions successfully right now, which is not a bad uh, not a bad metric and uh, if you go to tidio.com t-i-d-i-o.com and uh, go to slash v-u-x you can save 20 percent if you were to sign up and give it a whirl so there you go can't say fairer than that tidio.com t-i-d-i-o.com and now what is it now friday the 25th of august now in a week and a bit's time, week and a half's time, we will be uh, donning upon the Voice and AI Summit uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Matt is going to be there. My guest today, Noble, is partnering with VUX World on our stage, which is absolutely immense. It's shaping up to be an epic agenda and program. And on, uh, so what is it? It's going to be the event itself starts on the 5th of September. Uh, our day is going to be on the 6th. We've got a whole stage there. We've got a whole program, jam-packed program. It's going to be absolutely immense. We're going to do even better than last year, if you can believe that. Uh, and you can save if you want to, if you want to go ahead and, uh, and get a ticket for that. If you haven't got a ticket already, you can save 20% if you use the promo code VUX20. This is the event of the year for the AI scene, the AI crowd, practitioners, business leaders, all those people who are trying to find out how do you implement this kind of stuff successfully? And all the people who are already implementing this stuff successfully are all going to be there. So you can go to voiceand.ai and use the promo code VUX20 to save 20%. And the very final thing I will mention is that after the Voice Summit, we are going to be getting our webinars back on track. And so on the uh, 21st of September, we have a webinar with ServiceBot, and we are going to be looking at... Uh, it's going to be called Beyond the Basics, and it's a masterclass in integrating LLMs and NLU systems together. And so if that sounds interesting for you, you can go to vux.world, and you can click on the little events uh, menu item, and it will take you to that landing page. You can register for that webinar right now. So please do. All right. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Matt Taylor, who is the CPO and co-founder of Noble. Matt, welcome. Welcome back. Hey, hey, Kane. How's it doing? Very good, very good, man. Very good. How are you? Good, good, man. It's uh, it's been a, a busy six months since uh, you know we were out last on here, but uh, it's been a it's been a great uh, great ride so far. Definitely, definitely. And um, usually we do kind of we have people back on the show usually like twelve months later, something like that. Whereas there's been so much going on in this space. Uh, you've obviously been hugely part of it and things have changed in terms of the success of noble and all kinds of stuff in such a short space of time as well and so definitely keen to get your your thoughts on that and we'll get into that in uh, in just a moment um and also before we move on shout out to your podcast uh the conversational ai divide which i had the pleasure of being on this week uh brilliant brilliant conversation so i appreciate that so yeah if anyone wants to check out the conversational ai divide i would encourage you to do so where is it is on spotify apple music all that kind of stuff Yep, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, iHeartRadio, all of those. Nice, nice, and it's a it's a decent premise. Tell us, tell us about the premise of Conversation Live Divide. So the reason we started the podcast was really to start figuring out which of the who where they like sit as the leaders and the laggards, and we really feel like the divide 
is going to start becoming much more apparent on the laggards and the leaders for who's going to hop on this large language model bandwagon. And, and when they say hop on, and, and we're going to get into it today, what does that actually mean? Because I think one of the things that is very confusing for a lot of these businesses is what are the applications that are realistic for them to leverage large language models and, you know, how they're going to start that journey. And the ones who have already invested so much in this, are they just going to sit back and wait to see what happens? And that's that waiting period, I think, is going to cause this division where you're going to see chatbots that are on websites that are way, way further in terms of capabilities than some of these previous generations. And unless these businesses are willing to kind of double down on their efforts, then there's going to be a, a pretty big divide in the industry. Nice. And do you think like what we used to speak about kind of in 2017, 2018, how you might have um, certain types of businesses, perhaps that didn't necessarily go all in on social or all in on mobile or whatever, they may end up kind of skipping all of that stuff and moving straight to kind of being trying to utilize AI. Um, and with that, I mean, a lot of the, and we've got to talk about the hype and stuff like that in a moment in terms of where we are in the hype cycle and stuff, but a lot of the messaging that you see coming from technology companies predominantly that are selling large language model-based solutions is is pl- really playing on that kind of, you know, decreased time to value, really easy to get started, really quick and simple. And it kind of creates this perception that as opposed to there being a divide, this technology actually should be so according to the headlines is so easy to get on with that you just kind of like everyone can do it and everyone can level the playing field but from our experience in the last few months of of implementing all this kind of stuff and and trialing it and stuff like that it doesn't seem to me to be exactly the case i wonder if you can share a bit of bit of your thoughts on like is it as simple as some might make out is it straightforward is there still some effort kind of required like and 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 in terms of that sort of divide, is it is it a case that it is still a big effort to do or, or not? Yeah. So, I mean, the last six months, I, I, I feel like education has been the most critical part of when we're talking to clients, when we're talking to really anyone in this industry. And one of the things that I, uh, I, I've seen is these expectations are starting to get unrealistic. And, and what I mean by that is, people are starting to say they've seen JetGPT and they want that, but they want it without any of the risk. And unfortunately having ChatGPT without any of the risk is just, that's not a possibility at this point, but what is a possibility is leveraging these large language models to get there quicker than we were before. And, and, you know, you look at the biggest problem that happened in this space before when you're embarking on building a virtual assistant is the data management piece. There was just so much data that each of these organizations had to manage and curate every single time they wanted to add any type of new capability. And it wasn't scalable. It was not like quick at all. And it was not easy. And so what what I'm kind of starting to, to pitch Noble is, hey, like we're way faster because we don't need all that data and we're way simpler and, and, and much more scalable but like, we're also not going to be ChatGPT without no risk, like, like, like without risk, like that, that to me is just, that's still further down the line. And so, you know, some of the things that are really exciting about ChatGPT is how conversational it can be and, and, you know, the, the ad hoc responses, but with those ad hoc responses, which is all driven by natural language generation, then you get all this risk. So, you know, I, I think w- what has really been happening lately is starting to, bring the expectations to a more realistic level that like, Hey, it is a lot better than it used to be. Like, like you don't have to run that same game that you used to, where it's like, you got to collect like, you know, crowdsource thousands and thousands of utterances or training phrases, but it's also not as simple as like, Oh, I just use a chat GPT plugin. And now my customers are going to get every single thing that they've ever needed. Like it's not, you know, there there's, there's somewhere in between. And I think showing them, the, the value that's created in between and, and showing that, Hey, you don't, you can do this without the risk, but you know, you do sacrifice some of that ad hoc conversational um, capability. And so I think it's just bringing people to the realistic expectations of what's actually being, you know, what's possible here at the enterprise level, right? Like we've talked about it before, but like if you're a small business and you want to leverage a chat GPT plugin, I mean, you can, you don't have that. You can be a little, riskier in terms of you know how how 
you know, customers interact with your brand. But when you're a Fortune 500 enterprise, you can't inherit that type of risk. So, you know, the way you go applying this is going to be, you know, just different. Mm. And when you talk about risk in terms of the, when you're saying that prospects and clients want chat GPT without the risk, are you talking the risk of it hallucinating and saying something potentially incorrect? Are you talking about the risk of it having potentially a inconsistent tone of voice and therefore there's a brand kind of reputation thing? Like what kind of risk are you, are you alluding to there? Yeah, I mean, I'd say all of the above. I think the biggest risk that any any of these brands would have is is giving either incorrect or you know just strictly uh, offensive um, types of responses back to their users, and it's something they they can't have. And especially now, the way you like these, you know, a lot of uh, users are interacting with the chat GPT or these chatbots. They're almost trying to get it to say something offensive, right? <laughs> like that's that's how I've seen so many tweets and and even on LinkedIn people taking videos of them able to, you know, quote unquote, break chat GPT by getting it to respond um, by either role playing or doing some type of, you know, interesting mechanism to get it to say something that it probably shouldn't. And what, you know, what, what we're doing is we're actually not leveraging natural language generation. What we're doing is we're using large language models to actually match what the user's query is to the content. So it's semantically matching the most similar content that a brand has. And, you know, that's valuable when you're working with these large enterprises that have vast amounts of content. And, you know, we've obviously run into now that we're actually doing this in pilots with multiple enterprises, we're we're running into certain equations where we're like, oh, there's actually, there's ways that we have to figure out how to transform their content to be more conversational. I'm happy to get into that um, today Mm -hmm. as well. But you know, more than anything, we're, we're, we're not bringing that risk of it just responding with, you know, anything because of the fact that we're, we're not allowing natural language generation at this point in time. And I'm not saying we won't in the future, right? Like it's, it's more just following the research and following, you know, where this technology is going to go and, and the that risk appetite of these brands. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Cause you're right. Like a lot of the risk comes from um, like if you look at the headlines over the last six months to maybe eight months or so, whenever these large language models get a bad rap in the headlines, it's pretty much is because someone's pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and tried. Apart from stuff like, you know, the story with Samsung and Samsung engineers were sharing code with ChatGPT and that, fair enough, like there's blunders like that. But like it's more around the times when someone's pushed it and they've almost like wrapped it up into a corner kind of thing like, like the example of the journalist who had the discussion with bing gpt and it said you should divorce your wife or whatever it's like but the question is will users actually let's say for example if you were using not necessarily natural language generation but you have some degree of that in your assistant and so there is a potential backdoor to it that's obviously not good and people can wind it up but i'd just like to know the percentage of users who would actually try and wind it up. It's not to say that you should have it there with a wide open back door, but it's almost like, you know, the times when people used to say, are you real? And tell me about yourself and have small talk with chatbots. We're almost past that. That might still happen, but we kind of past that because now there's mental models being created about what these things are. So I'm just, I'd just be curious about whether you have any, I haven't seen the the data in the world, in, in the assistance that we've worked on, but it'd be interesting to see whether or not, you know, customers are trying to break these things when it comes to a brand rather than Bing GPT or chat GPT or these big sort of like wide breadth technology companies, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'd say the majority of people are are probably not doing that. You know, I don't have the exact numbers either, but you, it's probably safe to say the majority of people are, are not trying to use their time to, you know, potentially show chat GPT in, in a bad light, right? Like it's a very useful tool and a lot of people use it as such, but um, I, I think more than anything, it's not even, you know, hey, we're going to get it to say something really offensive. I think it's the fact that it, when it does give you information, it always sounds very credible. And there are times where it's just strictly false because, you know, what it's pulling from, it's, you know, the way that ChatGPT works is really, it's just looking at each token and, and pretty much using a calculation of what's the most likely token after each, you know, so each word, what's the most likely word that would fit in that sentence and sometimes it just makes up things. So, you know, you look at like, hey, like, you know, if I if I put this on an automotive website and I said, hey, you know, do your cars have this and this? It, it could say, yes, they do, even if they don't, just based on, you know, some of the information that it's collected over time. And and again, it's it, it 
it's I think I said this the the last podcast we had, but it's it's a good liar. And that's the scariest thing about, you know, something like, you know, having a, a friend who's a bad liar. You know, we probably all have friends that are bad liars, but at least, you know, right away, like, OK, they're lying. So you don't have to you know worry that they're being devious. But like the good liars are the ones that are the scariest because you actually believe them. And, and that's kind of what ChatGPT is sometimes it, it it presents the information in such a credible way, even if it's completely false. Mm, interesting. What do, you, what do you think then that the since we last spoke in February, what are some of the notable changes that you think have occurred? You know, we could look at the market and the landscape. We could look at client education perceptions. We could look at technology advancements. You know, like what are some of the notable changes that you've noticed in the last six months? Yeah, so I mean, you know, from my perspective, one of the the first things is that enterprises have allocated budget to explore this, right? A lot of these big enterprises, um, they they don't want to be left behind. Uh, so they they really want to explore this. And so you have a lot of these innovation labs, test and learn groups fired up trying to, you know, with with a decent amount of budget allocated towards with a lot of time they call generative AI. Um, you know, even if I don't necessarily think that's always the best way to use, you know, what we're doing. I think large, large language models kind of more defines um, the applications that are available. But, you know, nonetheless, that that's how a lot of these brands are, are starting to explore this. And, and it's good for, you know, the industry in general, because I think what they're going to start seeing and, and you know, and with Noble being on the forefront is hopefully we start seeing these go into production with actual, you know, live use cases that demonstrate, oh, we can do this and still, you know, have it be safe and and, and not risky. And sure, will you know, will we sacrifice some of those conversational capabilities where ChatGBT can answer any single question that you want, but you know, again, that comes with the risk. And so being able to still put out these chatbots that could scale way quicker than they ever dreamed of, but, you know, you, you kind of like make sure that you're still looking at the scope of what you want to handle and not necessarily anything outside that scope. Mm, definitely. Um, do you think that, you know, we've seen lots of announcements, particularly from your likes of OpenAI. I think since we last spoke, um, when was it? It must have been, yeah, it must have been after we last spoke, GPT-4 launched, <clears throat> probably about four weeks or so after we spoke. Um, they announced this week, uh, this this week or last week, um, the ability to fine-tune GPT-3.5. And so there's, been, and there's, there's lots of other kind of advancements as well, like pricing and stuff like that, and, and you know, response speeds and all that kind of stuff. It's always changing, always getting better. There's some reports, actually, that in some in some cases, actually, the performance has gotten worse in, in, in places. But what what's your sort of, like, summary of what the tech what's happened with the technology specifically since last we spoke How, what are some of the advancements do you think that that we've seen from the technology standpoint yeah it's it's kind of interesting because like what we were seeing you know when we last talked was like it was almost like this rush to who could build the biggest baddest model right who could have the best and you know open ai was kind of at the you know the peak and you know google was was right there and in a lot of these, uh, you know, bigger companies are investing tons of money into building these models. And then what we saw is like, oh, a lot of the infrastructure can't support these these large, large models. So now it's, all right, who can make these models smaller, but still, you know, just as accurate. And so you have this, um, and this isn't just, you know, these closed source models like you have with OpenAI and, and Google, but more you now have these open source models that are trying to create more niche models for either a specific vertical or, you know, specific types of use cases. And I think what you're going to start seeing is there's going to be so many models. And, and this is the way that, you know, at least our hypothesis early on, and it's starting to see, you know, its way into, you know, coming true. But this idea that like, you can't really be attached to one model if you actually want to be able to be a conversational AI platform that can solve multiple use cases across multiple verticals. And mm. the the open source models are starting to get really good that are small enough to where you don't have to have this crazy amount of infrastructure to support these, because that, that's kind of the big thing that we see right now is these large models would take so many GPUs that like, it's, it's really, unless you're like, you know, one of the massive companies that's willing to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars and tens of millions to, to make this actually work. You know, a lot of time it's, you know, can we sacrifice a, a tiny bit of accuracy for a ton of money? And that's what I think you're, we're starting to see is 
it's not so much who can create the biggest, baddest model, but who can now create, okay, it's all, who can create the almost as good, much smaller model. And, um, you know, I, you're seeing that across the board. Um, uh, I forgot the, there was a, I forgot who created the, the, the llama model. Um, but that's one of the ones that have been getting a lot of, uh, uh, um, mm. a lot of press and attention lately, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, um, it's, it's more now trying to figure out how we can make these more, um, you know, more leverageable across the board. So that's yeah. what I see happening. Yeah. It was, it was Facebook meta who, that, that created the, like, I think it was leaked or something, wasn't it? it was, then it was made open source. And then you had like a good example of what you're just describing there. I think is one company or one group of students, I think our university or researchers took the llama model and I saw a study where they basically fine-tuned the llama model in the space of two weeks. And I think it was called something like alpaca or something like that. Yeah. And that was kind of like 76% as good as um, but, um, as good as bad. I think it was something like that, or as good as GPT-3 or whatever. And then another research institute did the same thing and, and fine-tuned alpaca to create whatever the other version was. The final version might have been Alpaca and the interim version might have been called something else. But anyway, through two rounds of fine-tuning, this open-source model of 20 billion parameters or something like that was performing at the same level as ChatGPT3 or 3.5 or whatever whatever it is, um, which is which is super, super interesting, you know. And I think sometimes I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, which is that, like, large, if you think of, let's say, GPT-4, massive model. No one knows how big it is, but it's a huge model immensely powerful and it's almost like a it's a big generalist isn't it it can do things like generate understanding it can do things like reasoning could give it maths problems you could give it documents to search through you could ask it to write you a story do you an email like there's so many things that it can do but when it comes to applying it in an enterprise you only really just need a sliver a very specific sliver of what it can do for certain use cases. So sometimes, and I'd be curious your thoughts on on this when it comes to the size of the model, sometimes it might feel as though using them big, massive models for particular enterprise use cases without fine-tuning is a bit like getting a sledgehammer to crack a nut, is it not? (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. And and that's where I think that, uh, you know, we're starting to see these more niche models that can be used for these different use cases. And and, and that's how Noble's platform is built, right? We don't want to be attached to a model. We're not a models company. We don't develop all these, you know, models. We couldn't compete with, you know, the open AIs. But what we do is we create the infrastructure, the pipeline around it to actually apply this to the enterprise level. So we're not attached to a certain model. We, we actually have built this, our architecture in a way where we can swap them out. And so, you know, when like that's that's why I love what's going on in the model space in, in that all these models are being created across the board for different, like, and it's not even just different use cases, right? Like there's different parts of the pipeline. Like if we go back to like how we thought about conversational AI before ChatGPT, a lot of these things still apply where, you know, you, you need a classification model, you need some type of slot extraction model, and you still can use these models to create, create those outputs that are now controlled. And, you know, there's a lot of different parts that are, can be very creative where, you know, we're looking into how we can leverage these models to do the conversational design part. But then, you know, everything, if you think about how we're working is we, we leverage a lot of generative AI to kind of create things like, for example, going back to the content part of, I, I referenced earlier, when we ingest content, what we're noticing is a lot of times these brands content isn't very conversational. So if I match content to a user's request, it might not sound very, you know, conversational. So if it's in a chat bot, it, it might be a little like awkward. So what we're doing is we're leveraging generative AI to transform their content, make it more conversational. But then once we do that and they, you know, review and approve that, now it's not changing. And it's kind of the similar way to how we're designing these conversational experiences where, hey, like let's leverage generative AI to do things like design conversational flows. But then once we design those conversational flows, they're not going to change. We don't want like that that ability for, you know, ad hoc responses that, again, the enterprise can't control, can't explain. It's not consistent. Th- those are the things we're cutting out. But we're leveraging generative to increase the the rate of how we get there. But then to a certain point, it's now like, OK, now, you know, once we review and approve that, we're not going to be leveraging that generative portion anymore. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
do you offer or do you do any sort of like specific fine tuning of of any particular models? Yeah, so like what we do is once we're we're leveraging this base model, but once we ingest their content, the fine tuning is actually done on on top. And what I mean by that is, you know, we we allow for you know think about like going back to the the previous training and how we would take data in and you know train each intent on that specific set of data, and then you'd have to curate that data. Well, what we do is we have this zero-shot learning where we take the content in, you can ask any question, and if it's not correct, what you go to is these different segments of content, and you can add a training phrase, and, and you can add a couple of those, and what it does is it starts to bolster onto that content to be you know easier for the AI to understand, okay, hey, if anyone asks anything similar to what that training phrase you added, then like I know that it's going to classify to that, and so it's, it's a similar training pattern, which has been nice to, because the enterprises can really wrap their mind around it, but it's at a much smaller scale. So most of the time you don't need those training phrases at all, but if you do, it's going to be like one to three, as opposed to the previous generation of a hundred to 300. Mm, yeah. And so would that be some kind of metadata that you would basically tag the content with? Is that, is that, I'm understanding that right? Yeah, I mean, what we're doing is like, you know, think about like how when we take the content in, we're creating all these semantic embeddings. And these semantic embeddings are like these topic areas that the AI can then look at. And so when I ask a question, it can say like, okay, we're going to like take my query, break it down into these different semantic embeddings, and then look at all the embeddings that we've already created with the content. So when I add a training phrase, it just adds more embeddings to that specific area, right? So it makes it easier for the AI to classify to that specific embedding space. And what some of the, the cool things we're doing in part of this, uh, two of these are patents, is the contextual awareness that we're automating. And we're doing that because we're leveraging previous queries embeddings to then leverage on top of the embeddings of the new query. And what that allows is you know, the ability to understand when we bring in content, what topics are similar to each other, and then the conversational handling. So, you know, sometimes it's easy to just give an example, but if I'm talking about like, hey, like, you know, can I open a checking account? Right now, there's two things I'm really asking in one, which is a, like the action of opening an account, but then like the type of account. And so when you look at the embeddings of that space, it's going to be looking at like, okay, here's the content related to open accounts and here's the content related to checking accounts. And then where is that um, overlap? But then if I say, well, what about a savings account? Now the AI not only knows like, okay, like we're still talking about opening account. And so it has to keep that context there, but I'm replacing that checking account with a savings account. So that used to take a long time when we were building those transitions out. Like when we go to the previous generation of technology, because we had to then, figure out all the transitions that were going to be available to that user. And it's, you know, it was going to be limited because we didn't have, we just couldn't scale that amount of data to train it on all the different ways a user can go. Now that we have these large language models, we don't need all that data. And so we've actually automated that. And the, the contextual awareness of the topics and the contextual handling are two of the patents we have. So it makes it a lot easier for an enterprise because they look at it and like, okay, so we don't have to do anything now to maintain contextual awareness. And it's and the answer is no. You 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 really get to leverage this out of the box for that. And that's one of the first things we did when we created because that was I think what you see a lot of times the enterprise gets wowed by this contextual awareness because they're just so used to working with chatbots that don't have that in there. Mm, that's really interesting. That so would a good way of thinking about that be to I suppose you could you could kind of compare it to a sort of intent entity relationship whereby the open account would be the high level topic and the checking or savings would almost be like entities within that. Is that how you would kind of describe it? So based on a query, you would figure out what the high level topic is. And then based on the details in that query, you would assign that to a subtopic. And then in follow follow up utterances and later in the conversation, you're basically checking against whether this now is changing the primary topic or changing a subtopic. Is that basically kind of so we, we have that, like, that's all what like we would call our transactional experiences. But in the example right. I just had, we like the classification model is actually good enough to know if I, if it just had, Hey, like, here's how to open a savings account. Here's how to open a checking account. 
it would be able to know without having to break those entities, like bring those entities into the equation at this point. And so that's mm-hmm. the, the, the beautiful part. But you are right when you think, think about like intent and entity relationships, when you're going to something a little bit more, um, you know, uh, a little bit more intense. And one of those things is like, um, we're doing this as a use case is helping this card provider provide transfer points to allow their customers to provide transfers, right? So they're going in there and they want to transfer points from this account to this account. And so now it's like, okay, we need entity extraction in this case, because what you're going to be doing is you're going to be extracting the the accounts they want to transfer points from amount. And that could all be given in one utterance, right? So I could say, hey, I'd like to transfer 500 points from this card to that card. And the intent, just like you said, like is the overarching topic of I want to transfer. But now we have three entities we, we want to extract. So there's no way to really like the, the, the AI is much better at extracting those types of entities as opposed to matching that to some content or database. And so what we allow then is the, the, the training on the AI to understand how to extract those entities. And then this is one of our other patents is the few shot learning for slot extraction. Because if you, if you look back at the dialogue flows of the world, extracting entities was even more difficult than the classification. You had to train it on sometimes thousands of examples for it to like actually work really well. And if you had the pre-built slots, that was great. But if you had anything outside those pre-built slots, it was very difficult to train on your own. And so now what we have leveraging these large language models is very similar um, technology in the sense that we're just leveraging it to now tell the AI like, hey, when you see an example of the amount of points, extract that as opposed to, you know, labeling thousands of examples. Mm, yeah. I, I appreciate that the example you gave isn't intent-based and entity extraction. I was just trying to think of like a mental model that would kind of yeah. relate to the concept of, of the theory behind it. But the, the, the last last part there around your the entity extraction when it comes to more transactional stuff, this is a, a discussion that I've had a couple of times on the podcast, and it seems to me as though I'm getting kind of uh, mixed mixed signals and responses about it so we haven't necessarily done a terrible amount of research into entity extraction at scale we've it's been more kind of a qualitative analysis based on small samples of data and really that is just using prompt engineering to try and tweak its its reliability in terms of extracting different types of entities names and reference numbers and stuff like that reference numbers and stuff is probably easier but like for things like um i don't know I don't know. I can't even think of an example. Pizza toppings is the first one that comes to mind where it's varied. It could be fruit, vegetable, it could be fish, it could be all sorts of stuff. Um, and the questions I've been asking a few people over the last kind of few weeks is how good are large language models at things like that, like entity extraction and stuff like that? Like, cause we compare large language models to humans quite a lot, compare their ability for them to understand their ability for them to be able to generate, uh, content. Um, so if you were comparing it to, a, a, a natural language understanding system like an intent-based model. And I appreciate that they are different technologies and they're both good at different things. And so we probably shouldn't really be comparing the two because the use cases that they're probably good for may be different. But if you were to compare them and to use large language models for, say, something like entity extraction, how kind of good are they in comparison? It sounds as though you've done more work than just prompt engineering. If you've got patents in this area and stuff like that, I'm just kind of curious about you know, level of accuracy and reliability on the entity extraction front. Yeah, so it's actually interesting to ask this question because early on when we did create this, um, the, you know, we got the patent for the the few shot learning entity extractions very early on. This was actually before ChatGPT even came out. And, you know, obviously GPT, like large language models were all like, you know, it was out before ChatGPT, but the attention yeah. wasn't there. And so the open source model wasn't nearly as vast as it is now. And so early on, the accuracy wasn't rate, right? Like I, I, I don't know what the exact percentage is when we ran our test, but it wasn't nearly as it, it took a lot more training data than we would have liked. So, you know, the few shot learning probably took like seven to eight examples and you know, that that's a bit more than a few, right? But it's a lot easier than it was before. But then when we saw these models coming out and, and, and especially over the last six months, we actually have increased the testing accuracy by quite a bit. Um, and so what we've done over the last six months is also build the infrastructure to support some of these larger models. Because before we are leveraging much smaller open source models because, you know, we're early company. We're not going to build a ton of infrastructure. If we don't need it yet. But as we've seen these models get a little bit bigger and a lot more accurate, it's like, OK, well, now it's figuring out the 
kind of like what I was saying before, like, where's the best bang for a buck? Like where, like what infrastructure should we build at the, you know, for the MVP type of, but MVP portion of this, but is also going to be almost as accurate. Some of these large language models. So the, to answer your question, they've gotten a lot better um, over time. And we've seen that firsthand being able to run these test cases. And, and the only part was that we had to build the infrastructure to now support them. So that's what we're doing. Uh, so that's what we've done now. And now we're in use cases. We're actually doing entity extraction live and we're doing it for, you know, product availability. You can imagine working with a retail store and being able to look at their inventory and then match their inventory to whatever product category the user gives. And that's a that's a pretty extreme version of slot extraction, right? Similar to pizza toppings, it, it's very vast in the amounts of directions you would go. And especially when you think about all the different parts of a product, right? Like if I'm talking about, you know, a a, a shirt, you know, a, a black shirt medium, that that's, you know, a little bit like easy. But what about like a refrigerator with different dimensions that has a specific parts of like, you know, a freezer that you want. And, and, and so it just gets more complex with some of these products. And so that's where the entity extraction is going to be tested extremely um, early on, but it's, yeah, we're, we're feeling pretty good about where we're at right now. Nice. And there's been various studies done around some of the NLU systems, you know, and some of the speech recognition systems as well, for example, you know, like Google, is historically better at capturing things like addresses, whereas, you know, IBM is better for financial use cases versus Microsoft that's better at whatever. And so, like, it's not necessarily an exact science because they're all fundamentally built in a very similar sort of way, but there is research out there that suggests that some some NLU systems perform better for different types of use cases, obviously depending on the training data. Some speech recognition models are tuned for various use cases and stuff like that. And as you've got this approach now, which is kind of like, noble being open to various different models you're not really caring about the model itself you just use whichever model you want have you noticed over you know the experience of putting this together that certain models perform better in different cases like for entity extraction are you using just one specific model for that and then for document search is is a different model better like are, are you noticing that different models are good or bad for different use cases yeah, so we're doing a lot of research right now and actually trying to figure out which models are better for which use cases, especially with the classification and the entity extraction. Um, some of these closed source models are, you know, performing really well. But again, like the, we're not going to work with an enterprise and, and then be okay with us using anything from like OpenAI just because their data privacy policy, you know, just wouldn't be acceptable. And, you know, as a, as a company that is, you know, all built around our security layer with SOC 2 type 2 compliance, like, we don't want to risk anything in that realm. So what we do is we still test those models to see how close these open source models are coming. And I'm telling you, the open source models are getting better and better to like, it's very, very minimal, the amount of difference that we're starting to see. Now, I mean, I'm sure that open AI is going to, in, in Google, they're going to continue to build some of these closed source models that are going to be, you know, better, but like, how much better and, and is that bang really worth the buck is, is kind of what we're looking at. So we're doing a lot of research. I don't have any specific models that I can tell you right now is better for which use case, but that's a lot of what our research is doing is seeing where we can leverage certain models for specific, not so much like the actual use case itself, but kind of the, the, the type of model that we'll need it to do, like the like classification or the slot extraction. Yeah, different, different models for different capabilities, basically, rather than use cases. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um I mentioned and alluded to it at the beginning of the the kind of podcast there that uh, the question of are we are we kind of moving out of the initial hype around this kind of technology. And a lot of the stuff that you're kind of explaining here is in some of it's still research based, you know, still trying to find out what the right model is for certain capabilities, but some of it is seemingly been having already been worked out if you've got patents in certain things and you know certain things are working really well and stuff like that so it seems to me as though like in terms of like proving the technology in practice which is different to like chat gpt i wouldn't necessarily say necessarily is a is a technology proven in practice it's, it's like a really big beta launch as it was last november you know it was it, it wasn't perfect kind of thing um whereas the underlying apis although they've been used quite a bit um you know beforehand um it seems as though like in the last six months at least i've noticed that it's a case of 
people finding out where they are best used and where's the right use cases and things like that. And so curious to think to get your kind of thoughts on where you think we are. Because also, if you think about when we were when we spoke last in February, every single week something was being released. There was an announcement from OpenAI. There's one feature. Microsoft's doing something. Snapchat's doing something. BMW. It's like everyone's doing something and it's going crazy. That seems to have slowed down a little bit. So I'm just curious in terms of your perceptions of like, where do you think we are on that? If you were to use that Gartner hype cycle sort of analogy, are are we through the peak of inflated expectations? Are we still kind of on the way up there? I I think if we're, if I could guess where we're at, I would say we're either at the peak or on the way down because I think what's happening as you see anything when the hype cycles, once a lot of these enterprises get their hands on it, or they at least get introduced to the reality of what you can do and can't do. I think they're starting to see like, okay, like, like, for example, I mentioned at the beginning, there is this, there's no, this like perfect chat GPT without any of the risk. And it's going to be so easy. And I'm like, I, you know, my days are done of having to review what customers are saying and making any changes. Like this thing can fix all my problems. Like, that that's not real. Right. And like that, that doesn't happen. And I think there, you know, the more of this education that comes, the more of those expectations will go. And I think what you'll see is, you know, the trough disillusionment, I think is what, you know, the next part of that is where it's a little bit lower than what it probably is until people kind of get that. Uh, I think what slope of enlightenment, I'm, I'm forgetting which like parts of it. That's but right, like, yeah. yeah, I think like, I think we're on the way down, but I think like, I think that there's going to be people who right away had like their doubts about how, how the hype actually was. And I've seen this like firsthand where I'm talking to these different enterprises. Some of the enterprises are more in that boat of a, well, why, why can't it just be like chat GPT? Don't we just put this there and just like put it up? Like, it's like, no, it's not that simple. And then there's other ones who had their doubts right away and they look at it more like, this is the traditional way of doing it. That's how they've done it. And they're like, oh, wow, this is a lot easier. We do need a lot less data. It's a lot easier to manage. It's not like perfect, but it's so much better than where we were at. And I think there's uh, there's two people, two different types of people that I'm seeing at the enterprises. The ones that that kind of have that 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 hype that they've like hope that everything is going to be true that they've heard. And there's the other ones that have been doubters and now are kind of like pleasantly surprised that, Oh, that actually is like pretty useful. Um, so that's kind of what I'm seeing. Um, but you know, I'm I'm curious if you're seeing similar. I think so. Yeah. Um, as I said before, like it, it seems to me as though what what people are doing now is finding where large language models work best. You know, and it, it was I think in January and probably February, even when we were when we were first spoke, it was very much this is the absolute be all and end all of the future. Whereas as we've learned over the last kind of few months and stuff like that, is that some, there are gaps in some instances like quality control, for example, and not to say that these gaps won't be filled, but there definitely is like, how do you measure and monitor the quality of the output is, is a, is a concern that I know that some enterprises have. Um, But what's good about it in this period is that, everybody seems to be a bit more grounded and having more practical discussions, you know, and, and kind of like finding where it works best, which I think is, is refreshing. So I'd probably say it's right. At least from where I'm standing, we might be kind of like passing over the, the kind of that peak of uh, inflated expectations, which has to happen. You know, we have to get through that phase. We have to get through the trophy disillusionment to then prove where it does work and what the best use cases are. Not Maybe that's not the case for like marketing, generating copy and, and writing emails yeah. and like B2C use cases, but certainly from the enterprise perspective, that's that's the way I kind of see it. Yeah. And, and the thing I've been kind of lately preaching to um, any of the enterprise applications that are going to be self-service is follow the volume, right? Like, you know, one, like a lot of the enterprises sometimes get like caught in this well, hey, like we could take all your content and let's get all the content absolutely perfect. And it's like, hey, like first let's start by, you know, using that content and maybe not every response is going to be extremely conversational. But once we start seeing where users are asking, you can start pinpointing your efforts more towards that volume. And it's similar to, you know, the 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 practice of, okay, are we going to build some transactional experiences for some of these higher volume topics? I think it's the way I kind of look at it is this like, you know, following the volume to, to make it a lot easier on yourselves because you're going to be able to, uh, you know, when you have millions of queries coming in, you're not going to be able to review all of them. And there's ways to cluster these and automate some of the review. But the at the end of the day, you're still going to have a human reviewing to some extent to see, is this answering it correctly? 
is like, how is the experience performing on that? Like, you know, cause it's very sub- subjective when you look at a query and the response, is that response accurate? Is, is the content actually just not true or is the, you know, is there more content that could have been added that could have been a better response? So it's, there's layers to it. And what I say is, Hey, focus the time on what the 80% of people are asking, because most of the time it's the 80, 20 rule where, 20% of the topics are asked by 80% of people. And so if you focus there first, you start to see that like that that containment and those accuracy levels, all those things hit so much higher right away. And that's when you get the, the you know, kind of that good feeling. And now it's like, okay, now we feel good and this technology is proving itself and you start to get that ROI. And then you can invest it more and to say, hey, like now we want to build content for other subjects and, and you know, make that other 20% experience even better. And so- you know, that's kind of where I'm, I'm trying to, to coach these enterprises on seeing just follow the volume. The volume will mm-hmm. tell you like your customers are going to tell you where to focus your time. And that's the beautiful part about that. And and one of our clients, it's actually going to be at voice um, and AI and, and, and is going to be presenting with me is um, a presidential bank. And so they you know, we we launched with them. Who was that at least a, three to four months ago? And just some of the topics they were like, we didn't even think people would ever ask these types of topics. And it's, and it's so enlightening for, you know, uh, and, and, and they're a smaller type of bank, but they're innovative and they're trying to, you know, kind of push the envelope compared to a lot of their competitors. And it's just very interesting to see, you know, how the voice of the customer completely changes the way they even look at their own business. And, and, and I, again, follow the volume. If, if there's anything I can like, like say to an enterprise at this point in time, whenever they're launching anything, follow the volume. Definitely, definitely. Very sound advice. Uh, I, I, I've been really engrossed in the conversation here, so I have took my eye off the comments. I know Miguel's uh, made a few comments, so thank you, Miguel. Uh, great talk, guys. I'm loving it. Thank you very much. So am I, so much so that I uh, completely didn't see that there were some comments coming through there. Um, the use case you spoke about there, which is seemingly a fairly common use case for large language models, which is taking a load, big load of data and ingesting it and then being able to query it, ask questions, get answers, things like that. Some of the stuff we've been trying to do with with um, the VUX bot, as I've been uh, alluding to on a few podcasts now, is essentially what we're doing is we're taking all of our podcast transcripts, ingesting it, and then turning it into a a bot that you can have a conversation with. So you could be able to say, what does Matt Taylor, what does Matt Taylor think about you know large language models? What's Presidential Bank doing with large language models, etc.? And you'll be able to just ask it questions and and uh, and and use it. The one of the challenges that we've come across is is Obviously, uh, obvious challenge is speech recognition. So transcribing all the podcasts results in quite a lot of issues in terms of, you know, word error rate and stuff like that. So there's a lot of data cleanup to, the, to be done, a lot of data cleansing. Um, but then also, for example, one of the tests that we did was uh, Ben interviewed Peter Isaacs from VoiceFlow. And in that episode, Peter says something about what Accenture thinks about large language models. And if you if you ingest that and then you ask it the question, what does Accenture think about large language models? It wasn't picking it up. And so we've had to go in there and then add some tags and some some data and stuff like that to, to then, you know, allude to the fact that this is where that content is kind of thing, which I think you've alluded to earlier on. Uh, you probably, I think you've said you've got some patents around that kind of thing. Um, but it, it kind of got me thinking about like to do this at scale within an enterprise, we're talking about like 300 hours worth of transcripts, which is probably nothing compared to the amount of data that some businesses have. And so, and, and so to what I suppose the question is like, to what extent is it crap in crap out and what ex, to what extent do businesses need to really organize their content and, and information before they start doing this? Yeah. So, so one thing I'll say is I, sometimes I, I think transcripts aren't as great at, of, of a source of truth as, as some, and in this case for, you know, VUX, I could see that being a little bit more of a source of truth, but a lot of times what we do with the enterprise is we look at their transcripts to see what customers are asking and how agents are responding. But we want to use that source of truth of the actual knowledge base to be what powers the system. We use the transcripts to supplement by creating test cases that we can run up against and see. Because the truth of the matter is like the content that you take, especially from these IVR transcripts, like you're saying, the ASR, the the, the, the automatic speech recognition breaks these things down and, and sometimes they don't make any sense. Like it just doesn't transcribe it very well. Um, but what, like what we use those transcripts are is to one, either create test cases that we can then see, okay, 
hey, let me ask a question that came from this transcript and let's use the knowledge base to respond and start comparing the responses based on what the agent gave and the knowledge base. And there's also the the part of we can leverage transcripts to take all those questions and like say the knowledge base is maybe not the most conversational format. What we can do is say, hey, like let's take all the questions from the transcript that these customers are asking. Let's then leverage generative AI to look uh, at all the knowledge bases and basically say, hey, like use this question and, and use this knowledge base to answer each of these questions. And now what you're doing is creating FAQs at scale. Now, these FAQs, if we're going to go to production, need to be reviewed because there's that the chance of that it's answering it completely false or, you know, it's just it's not exactly what you would want being put out in front of a customer. But once we review that, now you've created, you know, thousands of FAQs that now can be, you know, you do have to review. But now once you review, they're they're good to be put out there. And now we're not going to be changing that unless they want to update the content at, at a later point in time. So, like, these are some of the parts of where we want to manipulate or transform their content to be more conversational. Because if we think about if I'm on the IVR channel and I ask a question and we're just reading from a knowledge base, that's not going to be a good experience for the user. We want it to be more conversational than that. So being able to take that knowledge base, conversationalize it in, a, in, in some type of form or fashion, but then like, again, has to be reviewed before it can be then used. And so that's kind of our new process that we augmented because early on, you know, we we were like, okay, we're just going to use your content. You ask a question, it answers the content. It worked really well on a lot of chat and search use cases. But then once we started seeing like, oh, if we won't go to go in the IVR or we want to do just just pure voice, it's not going to be as good of an experience. We have to add this new layer or this new dimension of how we conversationalize that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and you're right though. Like the data that you trained it on, if, if you don't have a lot of good content, it's not going to be a great experience. But my argument to any brand would be, well, if you don't have good content, I think that's kind of a bigger problem that we need to start discussing. And the beautiful part is generative AI does create content that you can leverage in, in, you know, it's not always the best copy, but you can at least use it as a base. Yeah. It's an accelerator, isn't it? You know, um, we've got a, we've got a question here from Cassie, which is, uh, do you folks think that people will be able to see the unintended biases in large language models and develop ways to combat those biases? My thought is that people are still missing that recognition is the first step to recovery. Uh, <laughs> have you got any experience with uh, with biases in in these models? Are these have you noticed any bias in some of the models, and and in what ways can that be rectified? Yeah, so I think that's uh, something that honestly a lot of these bigger companies that you see, Meta, Google, OpenAI, are really focusing on, especially in today's culture where you know it's we're the culture in general is very sensitive to any type of biases, whether that's, you know, based on like any type of um, age, race, sex, whatever it is. And so I think right now they are trying to uncover and and fix that. And I, I, my guess is from this comment is that, you know, that it takes human recognition to first be able to actually even understand the bias. So like, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to speak on that, but the, what, what I will say is that right now that is a big focus of what they've been doing. And, you know, they, when they, when ChatGPT came out with it, they, they, they put that out there and pretty broad, like, you know, saying, Hey, like this is going to be biased and we're not responsible for it saying, you know, really anything offensive in any way, because like we can only control it so much and this shouldn't be for any production use case. Um, and all those things. But yeah, that's one of the things I know they're working on. I mean, one of the things we do, you know, again, we're, we're only going to be leveraging the content that they have, like we're doing that semantic matching. So the more content we recreate in the, in the more, you know, matching that you can do, but like the biases that I see is more along the lines of like, you know, if we're, if we're collecting a lot of content around, you know, say, say for an automotive and say maybe a lot of their content is all around, you know, Bluetooth or something like that. I can see where some questions that a user asks, like they're, because there's way more content for Bluetooth, it starts to gravitate towards where that volume of content is. And so that's when we, um, one of the things we put in our platform is a query diagnosis tool, which actually shows the, the, what we call token weight, but like it, it looks at each word and actually gives the weight of how much the, 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 the model was like gravitating towards that specific content based on each word. So you can see if it's like, 
oh, it, it didn't go to the right place. I can look at it and be like, why didn't it? It's like, oh, it was looking at this word and it was, you know, for some reason that word had a negative weight towards it. And that's what ultimately helps you go to that like specific content and say, oh, I'm going to add a training phrase with this specific word because we don't want that to negatively influence the model. So that's a different bias than what I'm guessing um, uh, Cassie was referring to. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I definitely think that the larger companies are focused on that. But again, they're focused on that for the model perspective. So it's great for us in the long term of what models we're going to be able to leverage, but that's not exactly what Noble is going to be focusing on. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much you can do, isn't there? I mean, you can't necessarily affect the actual model itself. You can just use the output of the model and then tune and train and train that basically. So I suppose you could have some steps in there, which is, I don't know, through some prompt engineering around you know don't don't say something racist or sexist or whatever it might be like but uh yeah unfortunately we're kind of stuck with using the output of the models for now uh there's a question here from miguel which is um matt do you think we are going in the multi-neuron direction or something more like Langchain? so the follow question um looked like you said where we, we assemble multiple models in a linear sequence so yeah. You know, I can't necessarily speak on the multi-neuron direction, but like, I do think, you know, when we think about how we've talked about how these different models are going to be better at certain things. And a lot of the AI pipeline ha- requires like a, like a really in-depth conversation requires quite a few things, right? There's the classification, the slot extraction, but not only that, there's actually the dialogue like management. There's the, um, you know, the the dialogue management, but like the disambiguation is part of that uh, dialogue management. And sometimes I think disambiguation is overlooked because a lot of times the way people talk, whether it's IVR or just in a chatbot, they say one word and that doesn't also ultimately help go to a specific piece of content. So how do we, how do we disambiguate by asking them the right questions to get to that ultimate like query that we need to, to give them the answer. Right. And so I think each of these models are better at di- like, you know, different things. So I do eventually see an AI pipeline that has multiple models and some type of sequencing. I don't know if, if, you know, how the sequencing would be, if it's all linear and you go classification, then entity extraction, or if it's all going to be kind of working together at the same time. But I, I don't know if that necessarily answered the first question, but um, yeah, I, mm. I can't really speak on the multi-neuron direction. Yeah. I think the, the one challenge there is is cost at the moment, isn't it? You know, if if you if you're running multiple models behind the scenes, like one of the things around around quality assurance that I think sounds really great t- potentially, is where like chain of thought prompting with self consistency, which is where basically you would have so a user says a query, you would then run that query through multiple models, and then the output of those models, you would have another model that vets the output. And it will say, where's the most consistent answer? And if, if like out of 10 models, seven answers are consistent, you would just take that answer and you would use that answer. So you've almost like, you've, 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 you've kind of like spread the risk across multiple models. You found out what, what's likely to be the most accurate answer based on the number of models that come back with something similar. And then you answer that. And so like you could potentially run that on every single query. <laughs> you could run that off the back of doing a document search and stuff like that. You could have multiple models doing that document search, see what they all come back with, use that chain of thought prompting myself consistency to then see what the most consistent answer is. And then you would serve that. But the, the issue with that, aside from the fact that it would be incredibly expensive, it was. It would also be take a quite incredibly long time, so to wait for all that process to happen in the background and stuff like that, especially on like a voice channel, even on a chat channel, it would just take forever. So it's kind of like I can understand why people are trialing multiple models, and in the open source community, definitely like chaining together various kind of prompts and models and all that to to produce an output. But it's when you move it into the enterprise, there's a lot more obstacles that come up, isn't there? Yeah. And one of the things that we've looked at is, you know, I think the biggest thing that everyone asks is like, how do I measure accuracy? Right. And that's not an easy thing to measure because like containment is an accuracy, right? There's like the, you can tell the enterprise that knows their stuff when they ask like, well, Hey, like containment's great because it doesn't go to an agent, but how do I know that it actually answered the question accurately? Because sometimes the user might just be frustrated and just hop off and that might look like a contained experience. And, you know, to an extent, I always will say accuracy does need to be measured by some type of human review. You can take a sample size that's statistically significant um, and, and you know use that. But what we're also seeing is there's a lot of these much larger language models that we can use that would be way too expensive and way too 
um, you know, well, the latency would be too high to actually allow for this type of processing to be put into production. But what we can do is allow the accuracy to be generated after the model actually already answers the question. So, you know, you can think of this being run after the equation. If I'm going in there and I'm reviewing queries for the week, I can run this model. It takes a little bit of time, obviously, because it's a much larger model. But now it can generate accuracy scores, look at the volume of different topics. And so now I'm going to look at high volume topics that maybe are in, answered like what the, the model would deem incorrect. And now I can look at that and use that. But these much, much larger models, you know, again, they're going to be trying like over time, they'll be smaller and smaller. And that's what will then be able to be used in production where there isn't high latency and it's not high cost. But there are ways to use some of those larger models where you're not directly facing with the customer. So the latency isn't a concern and it's not in real time. So you can also you don't run these all the time. And, you know, there is a cost perspective to where maybe we charge our clients. You know, we, we haven't actually put this in a platform yet, but maybe we charge our clients every time they run that. I don't know. Mm, yeah interesting um two final questions then one is what is kind of like the biggest misconception around large language models that you would challenge or or the one thing that you sort of wish everybody knew um i mean i think the the thing that's always been the the first part of educating any of our customers is just this idea that large language models just equals this, the generative portion, right? Like the idea that um, it's going to respond and we're not going to be able to control the response and there's not an explainability portion or it's not consistent. And so they kind of go right away to thinking large language models equals chat GPT. And what I say is no, like large language models are are literally what they are, right? Like it's it's a model that's been trained on just millions and billions of parameters of data and sometimes trillions, but like it's, it's got tons of this recognition, a sense of understanding what language is. So how we leverage those is going to be, you know, a vast amount of ways. But what we want to leverage is if we're building a self-service experience, we want to understand what the customer is saying. We can leverage large language models to understand what the customer is saying and be able to bring them to the right place by leveraging that content or that data. But the problem is, is like they right away think like, oh, well, it's just going to generate a response and it's no, that's that's not necessarily what large language models can do. That's like that's one of the things they can do if you want to leverage them in that sense. So I think it's just the misconception of what, you know, like that large language models just kind of like are chat GPT. They've just been like they've been tightly coupled for so long now that like that's kind of what people think of when they think of chat GPT, large language models. And and it's funny because I go back to when, you know, Noble started when when I would be on any type of call and I would say things like LLMs, like people would just be like, I, they don't know what that is. And I'd say transformers and they, they'd think that's just ridiculous. And then then it's like, now I say it and it's like, oh, ChatGPT. And it's like, well, not exactly. And and I, so I, it's kind of funny how the, the, the tune has changed. But, uh, you know, I, just like any part of like selling some new technology, education is going to be the biggest part. Like every sale we have is super uh based around consulting more than anything yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and uh if we were going to do this conversation again in six months time if you were to pull a crystal ball out and uh you know make some kind of like short-term predictions what what do you think the kind of things we'll be discussing in six months time will be so um I'm discussing some production use cases, right? Like we're doing pilots with multiple fortune 500 enterprises right now. So the hopes are that these pilots then, you know, succeed the way we'd want and, and succeed in the sense that like the technology does what we want it to do, but also that it, it succeeds in saving them money or achieving the ultimate goal that they want for their top line or bottom line. Um, and so I would say, we're discussing some production use cases um, and that's specific to not just noble, but a lot of these, companies that are are out there doing this exploration. So I think we'd have a lot more to take from. I think, you know, the the tech is going to be moving, I think, in tons of uh, interesting applications, even beyond, you know, specifically with conversational AI, but like computer vision. And I think you're going to start seeing computer vision and conversational AI come together much more tightly, because when you think about being able to uh, take, you know, a PowerPoint slide deck or, you know, a, um, a you know, a annuals uh, earnings reports or things like that. There's a lot of charts and graphs and images that can then be used to supplement with the the text. And so I think you're going to start seeing 
a tons of applications where it's multimodal like that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the models itself will be really good to the point where you're going to start seeing more B2C applications pop up that like, you know, the, the, I think this is beyond six months, but I think it's going to be kind of like the, the app boom where like you have the app store and like everyone create an app. And now it's like you, you have apps for literally every single thing you can imagine. I think we're going to eventually start seeing that for like certain assistants, right? I think we're going to have assistants that can do everything across the board. Um, because there's a lot more tolerance of, of risk when you're talking about a B2C application. So I could have something that, you know, helps me, you know, books flights, like, Hey, reminds me to send birthday texts or sends it for me and things like that. But um, in the enterprise world, I think it's just going to be starting to see these get into production, which will then create kind of those, those laggards where start to now, you know, come further into, okay, like we need to start exploring this. Mm. Yeah. The, uh, the whole personal assistant thing, it's kind of been on the agenda for many years, you know, and, and it's kind of gone through various shapes and sizes and stuff like that. But one of the interesting things about like ChatGPT and plugins and stuff like that is it does have the potential to become that kind of assistant. And, you know, something that I'm very bad at is doing things like birthday cards, birthday presents, you know, gifts for people going away on maternity leave and stuff like that. Like, I'm just really bad at that kind of... I have it on my to-do list. I stick it in my to-do list. It's always there, but other things trump it and it all, I end up sending late birthday cards and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, what would be great is just to be able to use something like that to say, order a present for XYZ for their birthday on this date or use my diary, find out what's when the birthday announcements are and just to be able to go to like a moon pig and have a script that's just going through the website buying something you could probably you could probably do that today it's just a massive effort to do so like the 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 democratization i'm what i'm hoping for like this is well beyond six months but like i'm hoping for the democratization of the ability to build stuff like that or out of the box plugins that have this kind of capability moonpig has a capability where they enable that through chat gpt and rather than me having to go on to moonpig sign in go through finding stuff you just sit at chat gpt get such and such a bunch of flowers for a birthday and send it to such and such and it just goes and does it you know i know that a lot of people experiment with that with auto gpt and stuff like that and it's kind of like that for me is is another area beyond like ui replacement as in everything becomes conversational and beyond personal assistance as in i need to actually ask you for something and then you'll give me it back like alexa being able to assign tasks and have something go away and do a task, which is not necessarily, again, it's not LLM based necessarily. That whole Moonpick example, you could do that today with RPA probably. Um, but it's trying to fuse these technologies. And you mentioned their computer vision. Like I think that the fusing of technologies together to create new capabilities is what I'm excited about, you know, um, right. and yeah. I'm sure that's what we'll see. And I'm sure you'll be a part of that. Uh, no doubt. Yeah, at least uh, it'll be nice to be able to do those types of things too, right? Like to, yeah, it'll make our lives a lot easier. I think sometimes we get bogged down with all these little things that we have to do throughout the day that we don't realize. Like it, even if it takes a little bit amount of time, it creates mind share that you're, you know, you can then free up to to then focus on some other tasks that might be a little bit more um, thoughtful. Exactly, exactly. Well, Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to seeing you in DC in just over a week's time. And uh, for those of you that have been tuning in, thank you for your questions. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to learn more about Noble, you can go to noble.com. That is K-N-O-W-B-L.com. And uh, I'm sure you'll be able to get in touch with the team and reach out to them there if uh, if you so desire. And uh, with that, thank you again, Matt, and I'll see you in uh, in a week and a half. Sounds good. Take it easy, Kane.